0: I am going to start this morning um, by reading two passages, and I think they're going to set the tone. Um, You don't have to uh, read along with me. Uh, Why don't you just sit and listen and think about the words? So I'm going to start in John 1. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, I'm going to read one more passage. This one from Colossians. Trey has just finished a series that dwelt for a time in this passage and it is worth a listen to. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So every year we uh, take uh, sometimes a day, Depends on the family. Sometimes a day, sometimes a week. Uh, Sometimes sometimes we take a month. Uh, A lot of families in this church take a month. Um, But every year we take some time to throw a party to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, It's called Christmas or Advent. uh, And we often build up you know, if you're in a part of a Christian family, you build up your awareness of the significance of this event day after day after day until the very day when we stand together and we and we, as a symbol of the gift we've been given in Christ, we trade uh, gifts and we sing together and we celebrate. Used to be, they called this a feast. Um, we don't do that so much anymore, but it's a part of the Christian calendar. It's been. Part of the Christian calendar for years and years and decades and centuries. Now, that statement, every year we throw a party to celebrate the birth of Jesus, is, is just a kind of another way to say that every year we throw a party to celebrate the humility of Jesus. Every year we we throw a party to celebrate the humility of Jesus. And he, here's what I mean. I think that nativity scenes haven't done you any favors. All right? Now I really love nativity scenes. They they stir in me affection not only for my neighbors, but for the gospel. Because in a in a season where it's it's kind of the cool neighborly thing to do, uh, to, um, to, to to just throw up some some lights and 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 maybe have like one of those blow up, you know, Charlie Brown things in your yard. Uh, it takes some, sometimes some real guts to have a nativity scene. Um, I love it. In fact, we were, we were driving through uh, after dropping by to see Taylor and Rich last night. We were driving through the neighborhood. And, um, and there was a nativity scene. And it was a silhouette of a barnyard with, you know, all the traditional characters. And then it said, wise men still seek him. And I just thought that was Beautiful. But I think I think you've been kind of led astray on some level by nativity scenes, and and what I mean is usually if it's uh, if it's a nativity scene, um, you're going to uh, you're going to see like a a fully clad and totally put together Mary, right? She's just going to be like this, right? Or or maybe like this, and Joseph is is going to be you know. He's going to be like this, or he's going to be like this, or sometimes he's kneeling, right? And you've got, like, the wise men, you know, in all their, like, majesty, kind of, just, and, and the angel, right? And it's all glorious, and, and you know what? The, the thing that strikes me the most is how clean it is. How, how clean it is. It's a, it's a barn. <laughs> Jesus was born in a barn. Um, I think that's a shame, uh, because it kind of dismisses, I think, some of the more relevant and powerful uh, aspects of the Incarnation. Um, Here's what I mean. The Son of God... The Son of God was born in a barn. All right, let's talk about the cultural aspects of this situation. All right, so... uh, Hang on, I'm trying to, I don't want Amy, I don't want you to have to try and keep up with me because I got like 95 slides this morning, Um, but you might have to uh, because my my connection's not really working very well. Um, So what I mean is uh, the Son of God uh, by whom all things were made and through whom all things were made uh, was born to... Mary in uh, Second Temple Judaism, in Second Temple Palestine, uh, in a barn. Now, you have to put some real distance between uh, what you know about giving birth. Okay? Um, So, conservative estimates of ancient Rome infant mortality rate range from 28 to 40%. That's conservative estimates. That means 280 to 400 infants died at birth. Okay? In ancient Rome. Now, that means that giving birth was three times as as fatal as ancient combat. Okay? Ancient birth was three times as fatal as ancient combat. Now, if you distance yourself from this this, uh, our conception of birth, uh, where you have like a, like a sterile hospital room and clean tools, right? And doctors and nurses and clean running water, right? You, you put 2,000 years between what we understand birth to be like and this situation, okay? You've got to put some distance between you and your understanding of what birth is like, and this situation. And then, you add to that situation, when birth is as messy as it has always been, you add to that situation, the dust of hay and dirt and the odor of manure. Okay? The dust of hay and dirt and the odor of manure and, and you're starting to get a picture of the significance of the Incarnation. Alright? The Son of God left glory for that. The Son of God left glory for that. Left the glory of the worship of the angels in heaven to be born in a barn where, where most children would have died surrounded by mud and dirt and the dust of hay and the odor of manure. And he was laid in a feeding trough. Right? That's what he left glory for. Now you take that picture, the, the, the beauty and glory and honor and worship of heaven to, to this dirty, mucky, muddy, smelly barn, and that's a picture of the Incarnation right? The Son of God left glory in sacrifice. Why? It didn't just, by the way, end there, right? The humiliation, the humility of Jesus didn't just end in the barnyard scene, scene, right? It kept going. He was marginalized and he was ignored and he was mocked and he was misunderstood and then he was Beaten and he was tortured and he was crucified. Right? From start to finish, the Son of God gave up glory for that. Right? It was never pretty. And yes, yeah, sure, there were some amazing scenes in the life of Jesus, but you've got to see his miracles against the backdrop of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the unbelief of the people of Israel. So there's never a shiny moment in the life of Jesus and it culminates in His sacrifice on the cross. That's the incarnation. And that's that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Why? Why did Jesus do that? Why did the Son of God give up all of this for for that? Like, you, You treat that seriously, nobody wants that. Nobody would trade their life for that life. But He did. Why? Because His people had made a mess of their lives and a mess of creation. And they had sold themselves to a ruthless enemy. And they were condemned to die without any hope of escape. That's why. The Son of God traded glory for sacrifice to save His people. The Son of God traded glory for sacrifice to save His people. Now, I can't think of a better reason to throw a party than that one. I can't think of a better reason to celebrate than that. That God Himself traded all the good things for all of this mess that I had earned. Right? He traded places with me. He took what I deserved, right? And so I can stand in right relationship with the God of the universe. I can be a son of God. That's, there's nothing more worth celebrating. It's what we do every Sunday, and it's what we do especially on Christmas. That's great. I'm not saying you shouldn't celebrate that. I think Advent should start on January 1st. Let's just, let's just do it this year. Why don't New Year's, we'll celebrate the end of the New Year or the end of the year, and we'll celebrate New Year's by starting the Advent reading. Let's just do it every 31 days until December 25th. How about that? Advent is the gospel, right? Christmas, if you do it right, is a telling of the gospel. So let's party. But I don't think it should stop there. I, I don't think we can stop there. What I want to talk about this morning is what we do on the other side of Christmas, right? You just spent a month or a week or or at least a day partying to celebrate the incarnation, partying to celebrate the humility of the Son of God who who took on filth and pain on your behalf, right? You 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 just spent a lot of time thinking about that. What are you you going to do with that after the party? How do you live? How should we live on the other side of Christmas? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I I think the answer is in Philippians. I think Paul actually answers the question, what do you do with the reality of the Incarnation? How do you live in response to to the humility of Jesus? Alright, so I want you to turn with me to Philippians 2. Turn with me to Philippians 2. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Did you hold up your Bible? I wasn't looking. Okay. All right. Let's start in verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. "...being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." Okay. Now I want to take this in part, and uh, Amy, I do now have control over the slides, so you're good to go. Thanks for flexing for me. Um, I want to take this in part, because I want to kind of follow Paul's argument, and I want to see exactly how his argument ought to change the way we think, not only about ourselves, but about other people. All right, so... Starting in verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort for love, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, now, he's asking the question, have you been emotionally affected by the Gospel? Have you been impressed upon by the miracle of the Advent? Has Christ's work comforted your heart? There's actually a Trinitarian formula here. If you've had any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love which is from the Father, and any participation in the Spirit. So, so God working in all of His Trinitarian beauty and majesty, impressing upon His people the beauty and the glory and the hope of the Gospel is what He's picturing here. right? He's saying, if that's you, if you found the Gospel comforting, if you found any encouragement in Christ, if you've been comforted by the love of God, then you need to, as a church, he's writing to a church. He says, "You, as a church, need to, in one accord, together pursue this mindset." All right, this is not merely a call for unity. He says, uh, "He says, have the same love." He says being in full accord and of one mind, being of the same mind. Now, some people read this as just be united. But, but uh, I love, there's a Gordon Fee, one of my favorites, um, has a commentary on Philippians. And he translates this himself, and he says basically, thinking the same thoughts, having the same thoughts, pursuing the same thoughts, right? And so you have this force of the passage pointing in a direction. That direction is, you chase this mindset. Well, the church is saying, what mindset? What, what mindset should I be pursuing? What mind should I be pursuing? Um, and here's the answer. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of Of others. All right, what mindset? What mindset is he appealing to the church to pursue in light of the gospel? Hey, you've been impacted by the gospel? Chase this frame of mind. What frame of mind is he talking about? Humility. If you've enjoyed the comfort of Christ, you must pursue the humility of Christ. Let's pursue the humility of Christ. Now, I love what Paul does here because it would have been simple enough just to say, be humble. right? But in order to explain what he means, he sort of contrasts humility against pride. So he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what he's doing, he's creating sort of a spectrum, and he's highlighting one side, which is pride, and he's highlighting the other side, which is humility. Right? He says, Pride is selfish ambition. My interests are more important than yours. That's what pride says. My interests. I myself am more important than you are, and my interests are more important than your interests. And then he says, That's not humility. He says, Humility is... Your interests are more important than mine. Right? Your interests are more important than mine. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Pride says, I will look out for me. And humility says, I will look out for you. Alright? So, so, thus far, we're in, we're in verse 3 now. Verse 4. The first four verses of this chapter, Paul basically says, look, if you have been comforted by the work of Christ, then you need to pursue the humility of Christ. And the humility of Christ says, not me, but you. Right? Not me, but you. Not my interests, but your interests. I am behaving and treating you as if your needs are more significant than my own. Right? And then he, he really spells it out for them in the life of The cross. So humility looks like the incarnation. Humility looks like the incarnation. God became a man. Right? That's what Paul's touching on. He didn't grasp onto. He didn't cling onto his divine rights. He set them aside. Right? God became a man. The king became a servant. Not just a man but a servant, same language, as slave. A slave to all. Right? So, so God became a man. The king became a servant. And the author of life submitted to death. Right? His humility just, just built layer upon layer to the death, the lowliest death, the death on the cross. Right? That's the picture that, that Paul uses to reference. Well, what do you mean humility? What do you mean I need to... I need to treat others as more significant than myself. What do you mean? I need to look out for for the needs of others, even as I look out for my own needs. He says, look at what Jesus did. He set aside His divine rights. And He became a man and a slave to all, a servant to all. And, and And He humbled Himself as a servant even unto death. That's what I mean, guys. Church, that's what I mean. When I say you need to be humble, but listen to this. Right on the heels of that sort of like pretty heavy call to humiliation, right? This is what Paul says. Therefore, therefore, right? Because Jesus did this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay. And Paul is suggesting that the mindset of Christ moves us to set aside our interests in the interests of another. And it's... Driven by a hope of reward. This is a self-forgetfulness driven by a hope of reward. It's not accidental. Paul didn't did just did, like, submit to a fit of praise. Right? Every time Paul stops to worship, it's on purpose. Okay, You see in Romans 9 and 10, you see this like, uh, the mystery of God's sovereignty in election. One of the hardest moments to wrap your mind around in the Bible, and he just stops and he praises God. Right? That's on, that's on purpose. That's teaching your heart how to respond. Alright? Well, he stops and talking about the humility of Jesus to, to step down from glory all the way down to the cross, and he says, therefore God has highly exalted him. Right? That exaltation placed right after a call to humility is an incentive. That's the hope of reward. We are driven in our humility by an expectation of reward. Christ set aside what He was owed. He set aside His divine rights. And He humbled Himself. Therefore, God exalted Him. And so, the right response to the Incarnation is to say, if I, like Christ humble myself on behalf of others, then I, like Christ, will be exalted. Right? If I humble myself, then I will be exalted. The gravity of sacrifice is met by a weight of glory we can hardly imagine. You are not supposed to believe that this type of humility is doable and sustainable. That... That's not the point. It's very, very, very difficult. We are asking you. Paul is asking you. I am asking you to lay down your life on behalf of others in such a way that you have nothing left. You have nothing left. But we're not stopping there. We're saying, lay down your life on behalf of others so that you have nothing left and you will be exalted and you will be rewarded. This is the tremendous risk and the staggering reward of the Christian life. This is the tremendous risk and the staggering reward of the Christian life. We do not talk enough about risk. Paul said, if there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied most among all men. Right? If there is no resurrection, we should be pitied more than anyone else. If that doesn't make sense to you, then you're not laying down your life. Right? The life of a Christian should be so utterly self-sacrificial that if you found out on your last day that it was all a myth, you would be devastated. You would be devastated and you would weep because your life would have been wasted on others. Right? That's that's the pity that Paul is referring to. And that's the level of sacrifice to which you're being called. The, The big pitch here is that if you follow Christ in humility, if you follow Christ in laying down your life on behalf of others, even to the point of death, that you will be exalted and rewarded in ways that you cannot even imagine. Lose everything to gain everything. That's the Christian call. Now, Jesus wasn't bashful about warning people not to follow Him. Jesus was not bashful about warning people not to follow Him. But we are we like numbers and we like big churches so we say there's no good reason not to follow Jesus okay on paper it's true but you should be living so radically for Christ that if you found out that, that Jesus was just a man it would crush you that's the risk Right? That's the risk. You lose everything to gain everything. If you did not gain everything, you would have just lost everything. That's the only way to follow Jesus. It's the only way to follow Jesus. So how should we live on the other side of Christmas? How should we live on the other side of Christmas? Paul says, if you're moved by the Incarnation, and I think you are. I think you are you're moved by the incarnation your life should look like the incarnation what I love about the book of Philippians is that he's, he's not just saying that he's showing that Paul's not just saying that he's showing that let me show you this is from the first chapter if you go back um, to uh, verse verse Twenty-one, one twenty-one. Listen to Paul. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire... Listen to him. Listen to him. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, read in my imprisonment, read in my suffering, read in my tireless exhaustion, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The choice here, Paul's imagining his choice. If he had a choice right now to live or to die, the choice in in living is to suffer every day in prison, to suffer every day in tireless teaching, to suffer every day. In, 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 in burden-carrying love for the good of the church, or to be with Christ, which is joy and glory and rest forever and ever. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul knows that. Right? That's the choice before him. And he imagines this choice. Which shall I choose? And what choice does he make? He says, to remain is more necessary on your account. So given the opportunity to depart and to be with Christ, which is, in his own words, far better, or to remain and suffer on their account, he says, that's more necessary for you. What better embodiment do we have of humility? I have interests. I have. This is. He's. He's old now, and he has been beaten, and he has been shipwrecked, and he has been stoned, and he has been imprisoned, and not very long from now, he will have his head cut off in the Roman Colosseum. This is the life of Paul. And if anybody has earned the right to stand beside the Lord and rest, it's it's Paul. He says, but to remain is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I'm sure I'm going to see you again. Not my interests, but your interests. That's humility. That's humility. And it's the only right response to the incarnation. Okay. So, uh... I have a few thoughts and some advice. I'm going to ask you some questions and stir you to think in a couple different directions. If doing things well were a prerequisite to teaching them, Dale would be up here and not me. So I understand. Okay, first. If someone's life is a total mess... Do you feel an, less of an obligation to serve them? Honestly, ask yourself that question. If somebody's life is a total mess, do you feel less of an obligation to serve them? If they have been served before and 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 mucked it up, if they've been served before and really hit a wall, if they have been uh, uh, redeemed from a crisis and and after a time, just return back into that crisis? Do you feel less of an obligation to serve them? I do. I do. That is evidence of not a full understanding of the Gospel. If Christ is who the Bible says He is, and if we are who the Bible says we are. And and, and don't think at this point, we. Like the, the broad, general, corporate, we. Think me. You remember you? The you from yesterday and the day before? The you from last week? The you from three months ago? The you who did that and said that? the you who kept turning to the same sins over and over and over again, if that's you, and Christ bought you with His blood, then a mess does not disqualify someone from service. Okay? There's almost this desperation to Peter when Peter asks, Look, my brother, say my brother sinned against me seven times, right? Do I have to forgive him again? And Jesus says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you the truth 70 times seven. So once you hit like 490, you're good. That's what that means, right? No, it means you just keep on serving and you keep on laying down your life and you keep on forgiving. We are the redeemed. Countless mercies have been poured out on us. We are recipients of grace unimaginable. Every day, every single day, we get just to touch more of a glimpse of how much grace we've been given. And often that comes by way of seeing the darkness in our own hearts. Take that framework and leverage it to serve others. I'll tell you a secret. If somebody has disqualified themselves from the service of 99% of humanity, you treat them with grace and mercy, they'll see it and they'll feel it in a way that, that maybe they've never felt it. And sometimes that's the way the Lord opens their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. Pouring yourself out on somebody who has wasted their life It's not something the world does, but it's what we do because we had wasted our lives. Right? And Christ poured Himself out on us. Okay. Amy, can you go to the next slide? Second, if major aspects of your life aren't uncomfortable... That should make you uncomfortable. All right. If major, I know that there's like a double negative here, and it's a problem. That's fine. I'm sorry. Um, if major aspects of your life aren't uncomfortable, that should make you uncomfortable. the The incarnation was a radically uncomfortable process, right? Stepping down from glory to be born in a barn. And then and then day by day to lay down your life marginalized misunderstood mocked persecuted tortured broken crucified it's uncomfortable and that's our model right that's the model how how do you in humility serve others that's how Paul just told you that. And so if you're living every day your best life now, ask yourself some questions. It's hard to apply things like this because it's going to look different in everybody's life. But you know, if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And you know what decisions you're not making because there's not enough social pressure because nobody really expects people to do that you should be dying today you should be dying that's what the life of Christ looks like it looks like dying daily as Christ says you want to be my disciple pick up your cross So if your life doesn't feel like a dying, circle up the people you trust and ask them questions. They will help you. They will help you. Okay. This one I'm particularly fond of right now because of all the poop. Remember the reward the next time you're changing a poopy diaper. This is what I mean. We often frame humility in these broad terms, like influenced by hero movies, right? Most of the time, your humility is not going to look like taking a bullet for someone, right? they are not, they're not an awful lot of bullets flying around. Often, your laying down your life on another person looks like joyful service, to the people who can't, even if they wanted to, pay you back. And I'm talking about parenting. We don't spend enough time reflecting on joyfully parenting children as a, as a sweet aroma to God. You can change diapers in a few different ways, but the Christian way to change diapers is hard praying over this little child and, and responding to this child's fit of anger in peace and joy and pleading while you're changing with them, while you're changing them, pleading for their salvation and, and reflecting on how much this is a picture of your desperate need for Jesus and how He served you in this desperate need so you ought to pour yourself out on this Little baby, you do parenting Christianly. Don't see that moment as a waste. You will be rewarded. Think about Christ's promise. You hand a glass of water to one of the least of these. You can't imagine your rewards. Right? Humility is often mundane, Messy business. There's not much glorious about the life of the humble. But when you find yourself doing the mundane and the messy acts of humility, pouring out yourself on behalf of another, demonstrating that you, their interests are held in a higher importance than yours, remember on the other side of that is a reward. You will be exalted. Amen. Finally, pride hides in your thought life. Pride hides in your thought life. Audit your attention. Interestingly enough, Paul points not only to how you behave towards others, but what you think about others. Not only to how you behave, but to what you think about them. And, and I think we have here a call to audit our attention. How much time do you spend thinking about you? How much time? Honestly. Now, you probably don't... I, I mean, maybe you, maybe you would find it helpful, but I, I would be embarrassed to confess, if I, if I were truly honest, how much time I, I'm thinking about my own interests... Against how much time I think about the interests of others. How much time I think about my goals. Right? My aspirations. My vision for the future. And instead of thinking about my neighbor, thinking about my, my, my brother or sister in Christ, thinking about my, my friend who lost a loved one, thinking about my friend who's struggling in his marriage, thinking about my friend who's... Spend time this week thinking about what you think about. Paul says nothing less than your thoughts about others should be more and greater than your thoughts about yourself. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the, the mental situation of the Incarnation. Right? How do we follow Jesus in our thought life? We follow Jesus in our thought life by forgetting our interests, self forgetfulness. Make it a life goal to to get to an end of a day without even thinking about what you want for tomorrow, what you want for next month, what you want for three months from now, and, and, and think instead about how that guy's doing, how she's doing, how I can pray for them. And if you find yourself a little embarrassed at the state of your thought life, come to Jesus. There's much, much grace, and He will help you. Okay. We're going to take the supper, and I hope that this call to humility, and I hope that this call to the incarnation will rally in your hearts a longing to do what Jesus did on behalf of others. What we do at this table will help. Remind you of His grace. Stir you to hope in His kingdom. Amen.